It's been said before that the Bible is a story uh, told along the series of songs that we find in it. God told Job that at the beginning of time, the angels sang together when God created the worlds. God's people, we see in the Bible, they sang new songs when God had done something new and special, like Exodus 15, the song of Moses and Miriam, or Judges 5, the song of Deborah and Barak, or in 1 Samuel 2, when Hannah sang a prayer song because she believed that God was up to something big in her day. The Virgin Mary leaned on Hannah's prayer song when she sang her famous Magnificat in Luke 1. And her cousin-in-law, Zechariah, joined in his own song some nine months or so after he was first, uh, well, struck, unable to speak. Of course, who could forget the collection of 150 songs right in the middle of our Bibles, in the book of Psalms, not to mention the 10 or 12 or so songs in Revelation, the last book of our Bible. The Bible is a story told along the lines of songs. It's also a story told along the lines of meals, we could say, meals. The story began with a a meal gone bad at the forbidden tree in the garden. In the next book of the Bible, early on in that book, in Exodus, we find God prescribing for his people a symbolic meal called the Passover to commemorate that night when God's judgment passed over those houses which had that sign of faith on the doorposts of the house. And they were to share in that meal year after year, once a year along with six other prescribed meals that God gave his people, all of which, all, each of them signifying something special. We come to the New Testament and we read that Jesus not only partook of those yearly meals or feasts, but he also just day to day ate common meals with common people. Jesus came eating and drinking, we're told, in contrast to John the Baptist's ministry in which he emphasized fasting. The night before his death, he instituted a a new special meal. Well, it was kind of both. It It was the celebration of that old classic Passover meal, but it was also a new meal which we call the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate later today. And recall that before his death, the night before his death, I'm sorry, recall that after his death, when he appeared to his disciples, one of the first things he said was, uh, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him some fish. And of course, what will heaven be like? Well, heaven will be like many things. One thing we're told is that it'll be like a giant feast. The Bible is a story told to us in meals And in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10, we have both a meal and a song. And to add another layer to it, it also has to do with a wedding. The meal and the song celebrate a marriage. So if you like singing 
And if you like eating and you like weddings, well, this is a great Sunday, isn't it? And if you don't like two out of three of those, well, be warned, this is what heaven will be like. It'll be like song. It'll be like a feast. It'll be like a wedding. In fact, it'll be the consummation of all these songs. It'll be the, the consummation of all these memorial meals that have come before. And it will be the consummation of marriage, that living illustration that God gave to well, to show us what his relationship with his people should be like. So here it is, Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, like all weddings, this consummate wedding at the end of time uh, has with it great anticipation and even a long waiting period. If this were a different kind of gathering, like a small group, maybe some of us who have been married uh, or are married, we might be able to share what all went into that, that wedding day. Uh, and a lot preceded it, I'm sure. Uh, for many of us, our, our wedding day was years in the making. Uh, certainly for for those girls who at the age of three began thinking about what their wedding day would be like. But even for men, eventually at some point you grow up and you begin to not only think about a girl who's pretty or a girl who seems pretty cool, but is that the one? It was the fall of 1993 that I first observed a girl named Sarah playing her guitar and singing. Uh, we didn't meet then. Um, we met months later, and we just met, just in passing, just briefly. It was another year later that I, uh, that I learned that she was now available. <laughs> so what happened to the other guy? Well, we won't go into that. And it was a year of friendship after that before I relayed my hope for something more than friendship. And it was then that she was graduating college and I still had a, a year left of college. And so our, our year beyond friendship, our, our time after whatever friendship was, was spent mostly by distance. And so we wrote a lot of letters and occasionally did phone calls. I say occasionally because it was 10 cents a minute back then for long-distance calls. Believe it or not, kids. <laughs> it 
And then on Christmas Day in 1995, I proposed to her. And thankfully, she said yes. And, and for me, it was in, in a sense, the anticipation now was even greater and the waiting was even harder. I'm sure Sarah was thinking, how am I going to get ready for this wedding by August 2nd, 1996? And I was thinking, how can I possibly speed up time to get to August 2nd, 1996, particularly that night? That night is what I was interested in, not so much the day of. <laughs> it's just the way it works. And I remember waking up on August 2nd, 1996, and, and literally out loud saying, Finally, finally. And finally is kind of the idea here in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It has finally come. It's been a long time coming. The consummate wedding, like other wedding days, uh, it has a backstory to it. It's a long story. One with a bit of a rocky road, perhaps like the days before you got married. So if you would, hold off on Revelation 19 for just a bit more while I try to tell you the backstory that goes into it. You see, in the Old Testament, and especially the prophets, God used marriage as a, as a favorite metaphor for his relationship with his people. In fact, rather than think of God you know, looking out in creation and trying to think of what would be a good illustration. We should probably think the sovereign God thinks of illustrations differently than we do. That's how we operate, right? We, we think, here's this idea or this concept. What would make a good illustration in this world that already exists? Well, it's more likely that God uh, designs things with his future illustrations in mind. And so he gave us marriage, not only because he's good, and marriage is good, and it's not good for the man to be alone, but because he has purposes from the very beginning of time to illustrate for us what his relationship with his people should be like. It should be affectionate. It should be close. It should be covenantal and sacrificial and pure and, and single-minded or single-focused. You might say, well, Ryan, not all marriages are like that, though. Some are really bad. And in fact, yes, that's exactly part of the illustration in the Bible. In fact, that's the primary way in the Old Testament that the marriage illustration was used. It was used negatively. God's people were so often not faithful to their God. And God would say through his prophets... I'm to be a husband to you, and you are to be a wife to me. But instead, you keep going after other gods like a spiritual harlot, like a spiritual prostitute who will sell yourself out for anyone and anything. Some of the most illicit language in all the Bible is found in these passages like Ezekiel 16 and Jeremiah 3 and the whole book of Hosea. The rebuke is meant to be stinging, that God's people might be, be shocked out of their spiritual infidelity. But basically, it didn't work. In Old Testament times, it didn't work. So, so we could piece it together like this. 
God had all along intended for human beings to relate to him like the very best marriage, single-mindedly and affectionately and intimately and covenantally and purely and beautifully. He has proven to be better than the very best husband imaginable. And we, for our part, Time and time again, we've proven, well, that we're sinners through and through. That we don't keep promises very well, even with God. We've proven time and again that we are cheats and scoundrels, spiritually speaking. And God could have said at some point, that's it! Enough! I'm sick of this! You have broken covenant with me more times than you can keep track of and more times than I want to keep track of. I'm done. I'm walking out. And he doesn't. He didn't. In fact, God not only promised to stick with it, but to fix it. To fix us. Not just to put up with our sin, but to forgive it and restore us and begin to change us. This is what we call the new covenant. It's found in passages like Jeremiah 31. It's called the eternal covenant in the book of Isaiah. Where God promised there that he would give us a new heart. He would change us from the inside out. Not all at once. It doesn't mean there'd be perfection on our side of the marriage. But it does mean there'd be something new. So in Isaiah 61... The everlasting covenant that God will make is along these lines. He'll clothe us with garments of salvation and cover us with robes of righteousness. It says there, as a groom decks himself out for a wedding and the bride puts on her jewels, so the Lord do, will do in this new and everlasting covenant. And that continues into the next chapter of Isaiah. In Isaiah 62, God's people will be called by a new name, it says. You'll be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. And no longer will you be called forsaken, but you'll be called this. My delight is in her and married. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Well, fast forward 600 or 700 years later, and Jesus shows up and begins teaching and talking about weddings and marriage. And not just literal weddings and marriages, though he touches on that from time to time. But he begins speaking of a heavenly wedding. And he begins speaking of himself as the groom in this picture. Which, of course, is the God role in the picture, right? Which is, in certain terms, intended by Jesus. He's... God come to earth. He's the husband that we finally need and finally find. So in Matthew 9, when the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, why is it that your disciples emphasize eating and celebrating and partying? And Jesus says, well, when the bridegroom has finally come, what are they supposed to do but celebrate? Of course they're doing that. In Matthew 22, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like the father throwing a giant wedding party for his son. 
That's an end of time party. And the question is, who's invited and, and who will come to it? We'll come back to Matthew 22 in just a bit, but you can probably already tell from both Matthew 9 and Matthew 22 that sometimes the Bible speaks in terms of this marriage already happening. It's now. The bridegroom has come. And it sometimes speaks of it as a future event. There's a sense in which it's like we're betrothed or engaged and the final big wedding day hasn't come yet, but it will come at the end. And so Paul can speak like this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So that's the Christian state. In a sense, they're married to Jesus. In a sense, well, the wedding day is still to come, and what a day of rejoicing that will be. Now, by the way, if you're not a Christian, you hear probably this talk of being married to Jesus, and you find it very strange. And we can understand. You know, you might think, like, meeting the Queen of England, that'd be great, but I don't want to be married to her. So meeting Jesus sounds great, and going to heaven is cool, and, and I want to be cool with him. I want to be friends. I want to be on his side. But, but marriage, a wedding, that's weird. Well, keep in mind, it's an illustration, and it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between human marriages and this marriage between God and his people. But there are some elements in marriage that relate to God relating to his people. Again, love, devotion, sacrifice, covenant, single-mindedness, sacrifice, forgiveness, on and on it goes. So with all that in mind, now we're in a better position to understand Revelation 19. Let me suggest four parts to our passage. The first being the wedding celebration. The celebration, verse 6 and 7, John heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. These are redeemed saints. They sound like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And they're crying out, hallelujah, and for two reasons. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And then verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for, second reason, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It has finally come. One day, on that final day, Babylon. Remember Babylon from weeks past? Babylon, that great harlot, the world and all of its sin and seduction. Though it's glitzy and glamorous and looks to be strong and pretty and powerful, well, in the end... It'll be shown to be what it is. Nothing. It'll be laid waste. And Christ's bride, by way of contrast, though in this life it occasionally looks beat up, full of scorn, dismissed, disregarded, swept under the rug, one day at the end of time, it'll be shown to be what it is. The apple of Christ's eye. His chosen one. And when that day comes, both because of Babylon's fall and because of the bride's inheritance, they will celebrate. 
the betrothal period, this engagement period that we're in right now, it, it's, it's sweet, but it is also hard, right? There's a now and a not yet element to the Christian life. But one day there will be no more not yet. The wedding will come. The marriage will begin. And all will be sweet. Heaven will be the righting of all wrongs. The end of all suffering. The satisfaction of all righteous longings. It'll mean the full realization of everything good. And especially spiritual things, right? Heaven will be the full realization of the things that we down here taste in morsel form. You know when you pray and you fight distraction and you feel inadequate and you can't suppress feelings of guilt and then then you realize you're talking to the God of the universe and there's a moment of sweetness and it feels like a genuine communication between man and God. Well, in heaven, we won't, we won't have any of the former and all of the latter. What we have now in morsel form will be a feast. Look at the exuberant praise again. The multitude gathers around their Savior, and their sound is like many waters, like mighty peals of thunder, and they cry out together, Hallelujah, he reigns. They encourage each other, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage has finally come. That'll be loud, it'll be passionate, it'll be anything but boring. This will be a a rowdy kind of holy joy. It'll be a supper. With any meal, any important meal or special meal, maybe a birthday meal, you have these elements of celebration, of enjoyment. You, you, you take the food you, that you like the most. That's what you have for a birthday dinner. Any meal really is a kind of rest. You shouldn't work while you eat. You stop from your work and you sit down. And meals should also be fellowship, communion. More and more we eat meals alone, which probably isn't good. And it certainly means we're missing out on what the Bible just assumes and what it talks about for our future. In heaven we will eat together with Jesus. And it will be a wedding dinner. And what are wedding dinners like down here on earth before a new heaven and a new earth? Well, well they're great. I, I hope you think so. They're the pinnacle of fanciness and celebration and joy and, and one anotherness and, and even beauty. Well, take that to the nth degree. Ratchet that up as far as you can imagine. And that's something of what the marriage supper of the Lamb will be like. And Jesus will be at the center of it all. You know, in our wedding cultures today, and I'm not suggesting we should change this by any means, but the bride is the center of attention. So I think it's right that we stand up when the bride walks in and all eyes are on her. It's a beautiful scene. And I've never seen a not pretty bride come down the, the aisle. And yet, we should remember that in ancient cultures, 
it was the groom who was the center of attention, for better or worse. But we know this, that in the end, in heaven, there'll be no doubt about who's the center of attention. The bride will be pretty because Jesus made her pretty. And Jesus will be the center of attention. Charles Spurgeon, that old Baptist pastor, he said, even now the Lord Jesus is no stranger to some of us, and we're not strangers to him. Yet there shall come a day when we shall see him face to face, and then we shall know him with a clearer and fuller knowledge than is possible for us today. What bliss that will be, I cannot tell. Oh, the ineffable brightness when we shall see the face of Jesus. Oh, the unspeakable sweetness when we will hear his voice. Oh, the amazing bliss when we shall manifest, when he shall manifest himself to us in all his glory. And there will come such a day for all whom he has redeemed, for all who trust him and rest in his atoning sacrifice. That will be the marriage supper of the Lamb, says Spurgeon. Heaven will be a celebration, a wedding with Jesus at the center. And in part, we'll celebrate because the waiting is over. Which leads secondly to this, the wedding preparation. There's something that came before this, even though it's next in our passage. We could call it the wedding preparation. And as we'll see, it has to do with this bride's clothes. Verse 7 the marriage has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now this idea of being clothed in a heavenly kind of way, oftentimes in the Bible, represents what we might call salvation by grace alone. It's a gift of God. It's his doing. We saw that in Isaiah 61, garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. You can see it also in Revelation 7, a passage we were in not long ago. There in heaven is the scene, and it says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of of the lamb. You see, they made their robes white not by scrubbing so hard or because they came in with white robes per se. It's that they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. That's salvation by grace alone. And yet in Revelation 19, the clothes here have more to do with the bride's perseverance, her endurance. She has made herself ready, verse 7, and her clothing is righteous deeds. What it means is that she has endured. She has, in the language of Revelation 2 and 3, in the letters to the churches, she has overcome. She suffered faithfully. And yet even this too, this endurance, this righteousness, this preparation all this is owing to God's grace as well notice that key phrase in verse 8 it was granted her this too is a gift 
Here we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility in one place, just as we see in other places, like Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Or, or Ephesians 2. It's by grace alone, and you are his workmanship, his handiwork, but this is handiwork created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So here, Christian, we should ask ourselves, are we preparing ourselves for our wedding day? If heaven is like a wedding day with Christ, and if our actions now are in some way preparatory for that day, then how are we preparing ourselves for that day, and how will we show up on that day? Now, I know that when we show up in heaven, we will claim no other righteousness than Christ's alone. That's why I began praying with Philippians 3 in mind, where Paul said, I count none of my righteousness as counting anything. In fact, it's dung. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I only have a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. So yes and amen to all of that. In fact, that's the most important way to answer the question of how you're going to show up in heaven and how you'll look or, or whether you've prepared yourself enough. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you just need to hone in on that one, not what I'm about to say next. You need to hone in on Christ's righteousness in not any of your own. You must trust only his righteousness in not any of your own in order to be saved and in order to enter heaven. That is the only basis from which someone can begin to actually ready themselves in some practical ways. And so for the Christian, we say, if heaven is like a wedding day with Christ, and if your actions now, according to our passage here, are in some ways preparatory for that final day, are we preparing ourselves? And how will we show up? Hopefully none of us showed up to our actual weddings like we forgot that today's the day. You know, rolled out of bed just before, still in our jammies, bed head, bad breath. Hopefully no one went to their own wedding like that. And so we hopefully won't be surprised when Christ comes back. Hopefully we will have endured. Hopefully we will have, at times, done right. We can say to ourselves now, why should I fight this temptation and not give in to it? The wedding day's coming. Why should I align my thoughts with God's kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world? Well, that's what's going to be in the end. The wedding day's coming. That's what's ahead. How can I endure suffering now and not give in, not give up? Well, the wedding day's coming. That's enough. So we've got celebration. We've got preparation. And now thirdly, we have the wedding invitation. The angel said, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you invited? Yes, you are. You are. You might notice there's a mixing of metaphors going on here. You've got the bride, 
And then you have those who are invited. Those would be the guests, I suppose. You might be thinking, well, which one is it? I, I want to be the bride. I don't want to be an invited guest. I want to be the bride. Well, it's, it's both. It's a mixing of metaphors. That's how this stuff works. You take each one on its own terms. The church is the bride. And in all those who respond to the invitation with a yes, they're in. You could say they're guests. You could say they're the bride. It really doesn't matter. But the invitation is for you. In fact, Revelation 22 extends the invitation to still this day, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let him come. There's the invitation extended broadly, widely, without any qualifications except hunger and thirst and no money. The invitation to the heavenly wedding is spelled out for us in story form or, or in parable form in Matthew 22. I already alluded to it. Let me read it for you. It's worth our time. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Did you spot the different responses there? There's the response of indifference, the response of busyness. The response of anger in opposition for some reason. And there's even the response to come, but to come in on your own terms. You see, a wedding garment in ancient culture was your, your pass, your hall pass to come to the wedding. Imagine if in our culture today, you had to show up with your wedding invitation and your driver's license. You'd say, look, this came in the mail. Here's my name. Here." my ID, this is me, and we let you in. Thankfully, we don't, uh, we don't police weddings quite like that these days, but, but you can imagine how the wedding garment was this, this key to unlock the wedding. It was this pass to come on in, and a man decides he's going to come in on his own terms without 
this wedding garment which would have been given to him. You can't come in like that. But you can come in happily on God's own terms. In fact, this is written down for you. It was written down and recorded and translated in Matthew 22. Notice here, it's actually written down because John was told by an angel, write this down. He didn't say paint an abstract painting. Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. Write it down. Here we have it in black and white for you to to stare at it, to to lean on it, to, to embrace it. And fourthly, in our passage, there's an angelic affirmation. These are the last couple verses of our passage. At first, they seem to me to be a bit, well, odd. It seems a little out of place. It seems a little herky-jerky with the flow. And it seems strange to read that the Apostle John would mistake an angel for God. But in all this, it has to do with an affirmation of what's already been said. Notice that's what the angel says next. Verse 9, these are the true words of God. And then John is so moved by what he's seen and heard. Not just this command to write it down, but the loud song of heaven and the angelic invitation. And so John responds by falling to the ground. It's a case of mistaken identity. One which we can roll our eyes at here looking at the passage, but we haven't experienced the angel that he did. We can be at least a little sympathetic. And yet we can also see that the angel will have none of it. The angel's response to John's case of mistaken identity and his misplaced worship is to show the singularity of God. He alone is God. And he alone is to be worshipped. And the angel's redirection of John's worship to God and away from himself proves that this great being, well, he can be trusted. He represents God. He points John to God. All this is rock solid. It has angelic affirmation. Really, we could say it has divine affirmation. And then this last sentence, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Confusing, but here's my best take on that. The testimony of Jesus is the message that we believe and proclaim. It's the gospel. And the testimony of Jesus that is the spirit of prophecy, well, spirit there could be capitalized, be the Holy Spirit. So think the Holy Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim the testimony of Jesus. It's all about affirmation. So believe on account of this affirmation. Receive and heed the invitation. Don't neglect, Christian, this bridal preparation in the days before our wedding to the Savior. And in the meantime, be encouraged by heaven's exuberant celebration. This is what's ahead for us, and it's what we have a foretaste of even when we gather like this and simply sing truth and worship back to God.
And in the meantime, he's not only given us songs, he's also given us a symbol. We could say, in the meantime, he's given us a meal of reflection and even one of anticipation. It's been said that the Lord's Supper is something like the rehearsal dinner for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's not overstating things, I don't think. The Lord's Supper is a meal that looks backward to the cross, and it's also a meal that looks forward. Jesus said, you proclaim the Lord's death in this meal until he comes. Or as he put it in Luke 22, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper and talking about a meal still to come at the end of time, he says, I I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten. He said, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. And as Jesus went on to say, as the Father has given me a kingdom, so I'm giving you a kingdom that you may eat and drink in my kingdom. This is what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate what's to come. We celebrate what's already been done. The broken bread symbolizes Jesus' broken body on our behalf. The cup symbolizes his blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. By partaking of it afresh, we today remind ourselves what he's done and what it cost and how much we needed it. And we also thank him for it. We partake of it. It's as if we receive it again. Not that we need to get saved again, but, but we keep believing, we keep believing, we keep believing. And we keep looking ahead. We keep waiting. And this is just a, a foretaste, a morsel of the meal that will come at the end of time in heaven.